0: So Romans 3, beginning of verse 1, let us hear the word of God. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And... Why not say, let us do evil, the good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. The grass withers the fire fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. <laughs> well, as we begin here today, we um, hear a lot about uh, people who have advantages or privileges. We hear a lot about how... Uh, that may be bad, and uh, other people who are underprivileged should have more privileges and so forth. So whether you're talking about uh, these progressive ideas, the rich versus the poor or whatever, um, uh, we can certainly talk about the popular versus those who are not, the nerds or something like that. Uh, We we can talk about all kinds of privileges and advantages and, and have discussions in that way. Well, Paul here is talking about the advantage that we have as God's people. Now, we talked about this somewhat in chapter 2, verses 17 to 20 especially, but he returns to this thought here in this way in verses 1 and 2. And so thus far, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has not wavered from his argument. And he is told to us that all people suppress the truth about God and worship the creature rather than the creator. This is certainly true of the Gentile, the unbeliever, but it is true of all of us to some degree or another. And so this then elicits God's judgment upon us, daily judgments, handing us over to social sins and sexual sins. But then Paul also says that uh, even the so-called good people are so far from keeping God's standard that uh, judgment is inevitable. And of course, ultimately, there are no good people because we all have broken God's standard. And Paul is saying that everybody has received God's standard, either directly in the scriptures like we have, and of course, everyone has the law of God written on their hearts. And then most recently, Paul here has been speaking directly to the people of God, God's chosen people, and he has said that we're all hypocrites and we trust in the outward acts of religion, which leave us open to judgment too. None of us are perfect, of course, in these ways. And so our only hope is if God does something. And in particular, we saw last time, Paul emphasized We need the spirit to work inside of us. We need the spirit to change our hearts, to take them from these stony hearts and make them hearts of flesh and make us alive in Christ. Now, one of Paul's points has been to say that all the benefits that Israel received from God himself are useless to spare us from God's judgment. And so whether it's, God giving them the scriptures or circumcision, having the ethnic and religious heritage back to Abraham, uh, the law of Moses, of course, in particular. And we could say other things that Paul doesn't mention here uh, about the land of promise or some of the past acts of God and so forth. God gave all these things to Israel, okay? And these are beneficial, but they are not effective unto salvation. And the same can be said for us the benefits that we receive. We have all the scriptures now, not just the Old Testament. And we can read it. We have it in front of us. We can pray. We can be baptized. We can come to church. We can uh, have Christian activities and be a member of a church and so forth. And we can even talk about our faith in this way. That all of these blessings, all of these benefits and advantages and privileges, none of them, can turn aside God's wrath because every single one of them, even our faith, is imperfect. So a natural response then to this is to simply say, well, why bother? Why not go with the guy I saw here on the way to church and go hunting this morning? Why come here? Why not sleep in? It seems to be pointless. What good are these spiritual blessings then anyway? If they can't save us, how can we say that they are blessings? Why did God give them? Why did he command us to keep them? If none of them can be done to please God, then why bother? Why try? It seems pointless and useless. Well, Paul now finally pauses in his argument. And he's going to answer this question, at least in part. He's gonna turn to address not only this question, but some other questions in these verses. He begins by using more of his language here uh, to simply answer the question, are Jews no better than Gentiles in every way? If this is true, then why did God choose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why the Exodus? Why the law of Moses and the conquest? Why David and Solomon and the the temple Or to put it this way, if Gentiles can be true Jews and Jews who are circumcised can face judgment, again, what's the point? What's the point? Well, Paul's going to begin answering this in verses 1 and 2, and then in the remaining verses, he's going to move on to some questions regarding God and his character especially, his promises, his justice. But Paul is just going to get started, you might say. He's going to expand on these answers as well as questions in chapter 9 and really address these things in chapters 9 through 11. And so we're just going to get a a taste of it now and he will say more later on. And so as a general overview then, verses 1 and 2, can be summarized something like this. Our sin nullifies eternal blessings. But that does, our sin does not nullify the reality that God has blessed his people. In verses 3 and 4, our sin does not nullify God's faithfulness. And then in verses 5 to 8, though we could subdivide this, but generally, our sin does not nullify God's justice. And so sin is a big problem. But it does not nullify God's Blessings, his faithfulness, nor his justice. The problem is us, not God. Now, as we come to this section, Paul is obviously responding to objections. And so many people have suggested over the centuries that that Paul is probably responding to things that he heard while in the synagogue. Remember, he went to the synagogue first, right? The Jew first and the Gentile and so forth. So he, he likely is... Uh, putting down here some of these questions that he heard. Uh, Maybe he's thinking of a specific example, maybe a a heckler or something that he heard in one of them. Uh, Other people have have said, well, that, that may be true, but it's also possible that Paul is arguing with an imaginary objector to try to advance his argument, and in this case, to try to deal with some of the objections. Some have even said that Paul is arguing with himself, meaning Paul the Jew, compared to Paul the Christian. Um, it may be a little bit of all the above here, but obviously Paul is, is being very deliberative and saying, okay, I've said all these things and I can understand why people might want to raise some objections. So let me answer some of those. Okay. Now, as we've been looking at chapter one, verses 18 and following, we've all objected to the idea that there is nothing good in us whatsoever. We don't like to think that way. We've all objected to it, maybe consciously, but certainly unconsciously. And maybe we've even said, well, Paul, it seems like you're contradicting this other passage or this other idea. You've gone too far, Paul. uh, We don't want to do a pendulum swing and go so far in the one direction that we, we miss what's actually true or, you know, something to that effect. And so Paul is pausing to say uh, these things. Now, one last thing in this way. Um, In verses 1 to 8, there are many commentators over the centuries who have said this is the hardest section in Romans to translate and to interpret. Um, Romans 9 is challenging, Romans 7 is challenging too. So um, I don't know if this is the most challenging or not, but it's certainly one of them. And so, not surprisingly, There are many different views that have been advanced over the centuries and uh, many questions have been asked and some are still unanswered, but I will try to focus on what um, uh, Paul is saying. So, first one, which I've in many ways already talked about. What advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Two basic questions, okay? Okay. Simply, do all the truths that Paul has espoused in chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, right? Does this mean that there is no benefit at all? And especially as we've seen here in chapter 2, beginning of verse 6 to the end of the chapter, right, it seems like Jews have no benefit at all. There's no advantage of being a Jew compared to a Gentile. There's no advantage, we could say, being a Christian compared to a non-Christian. And then a second question, does circumcision have any benefit whatsoever? Or we could ask, does baptism have any any benefit whatsoever? And certainly we could fill in with any other spiritual benefit. If Jews are equally condemned with Gentiles, if Christians are no better than non-Christians, if Jews and circumcision are redefined, and we've talked about the true Jew and inner circumcision, What good are these privileges? Do we have any advantages with these things? And again, why bother? Well, Paul answers the question here in verse 2 and says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. His answer here is very strong, much in every way. Paul's not uh, just saying, well, you know, there, there are a few benefits. But no, there's much benefit in being a Jew and having circumcision. Of course there are advantages. And, and actually in the Greek, there's another word here that could be translated as indeed. We're, we'll see that um, in uh, verse 4, the word indeed. Uh, but we can have it here too. Right? Most of the translations do not include it, um, but it stresses his point. Now, if you look at chapter 2 here a moment, in verse 25, Paul said there, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. And now here he says, okay, Much in every way, okay, because he answers the question, What is the profit of circumcision? It's the same word there, profit, or profitable, or advantage, or however your translation does this. There is profit if we keep the law. Problem is, we don't. But then you have to ask the question, well, since none of us keep the law, how is there any profit at all? Well, notice what he emphasizes. He he doesn't emphasize circumcision here. He emphasizes now having the word of God. And so he says, chiefly, because to them were committed the oracles of God. And one of those oracles, of course, had to do with circumcision. Now, if you have another translation, you don't have the word chiefly, you might have the word first or possibly first and foremost, Uh, the Greek word is just the regular uh, word for first, okay, what we call the ordinal number, first, second, third, and so forth, right, so um, it's the first thing. Now, does this mean it's the most important thing? Obviously, the New King James takes it that way, and and that's certainly possible, uh, and certainly true in certain ways. And so Paul is saying, look, God has entrusted the Jews with his word. Now, in chapter 1, of course, we talked about general revelation and how uh, God has revealed himself to everyone in general. All you have to do is look in the mirror, look at one another, look out the window. Even though things are now brown and not so pretty as they were a few weeks ago, um, still we... We see these things, we're like, well, yeah, God made all of this. And we know many things about God. And so God has revealed himself to everyone in general. We saw in chapter 2, Paul teaching us that the law of God is written on everyone's heart. And so God has made himself known to everyone in this way. We all have the Ten Commandments, the moral law, written within inside of us. We all know what is right and wrong, these kinds of ideas. But then we have special revelation. And this means God reveals himself to special people in special ways. He doesn't do it to everybody, but to a special group of people. And Paul is saying, well, that was true of Israel. God revealed himself in these special ways and did not reveal himself to other people. And in the old covenant, that was true. God revealed himself to Israel and that's it. Okay. Now, there were some truths that were passed down through the centuries, some truths from the flood, some truths from the creation and so forth, and came through Noah's family They got passed down. But uh, in terms of God's special revelation, that was with Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and so forth. It's special. It's not common. And so Israel was special. We're special. We have these advantages, these privileges. Other people don't have them. Now, the word here for oracle, your translation may say the word saying or something like that. Um, In in giving this term, Paul is not merely talking about the law of Moses. As we saw in chapter 2, verses 6 and following, that was his emphasis, the standard found in the law of Moses in particular. And we expanded upon that. Well, now Paul is expanding himself by using this terminology all of the scripture. And of course, from his perspective, he's talking about the Old Testament. Hey, So the law, the prophets, the writings, the promises, and the curses, and so forth. Um, plus all the different ways God revealed himself to them. Here just the other day, I was reading about Gideon. One of my names of God took me to uh, Judges 6. And uh, remember, God comes to him. The angel of the Lord comes to him um, in the person of Jesus Christ I think is how we should understand it and remember um, that Gideon puts out the food on the rock and then the angel of the Lord touches it it burns up and so forth and uh, there are a variety of ways that God made himself known in this case to a special person Gideon and nobody else now we of course know about it because it was written down But you have other passages that speak about dreams people had. We've talked in 2 Samuel here recently about David using the Urim and Thummim. Obviously you have the prophets, especially Moses, and so on. Now this special revelation has continued with us. We have all the scriptures now, the New Testament, not just the Old. We have Jesus, the Living Word, and then we have the Apostles and Prophets writing about all this in the rest of the New Testament. And of course we just read some of that here a moment ago. And so Paul is saying, look, this is an amazing blessing. Even though it's not going to save you by having it in your hands or reading it, that that in and of itself is not going to save you, but it's still a blessing. We cannot deny that. Let's turn a moment to Psalm 147. Here's one example of this idea that Paul is making. In Psalm 147, at the end of the psalm, it says this. He, referring to God, Yahweh, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. And the fitting ending here, right? Praise the Lord. And so Egypt didn't have this, Philistines didn't have this, Babylon didn't have this, None of the other nations had the word of God, the statutes and judgments of God. Now, certainly they heard some things. When Israel was in Egypt, Pharaoh learned an awful lot about Yahweh. When Israel went to Babylon, Hey, Daniel and his friends and Ezekiel, there were people in Babylon who learned these things. Nebuchadnezzar, we know his story, and Daniel too, and so on. Uh, but notice, God didn't give his word to those people. He gave his word to his people, and then they went somewhere else and brought that word along with them. And so God didn't give his word to anyone other than Israel. And the same can be said for us today. God has given his word to his church. Now, we are in all kinds of nations. Hey, John just talked about that here a little bit ago, how God's word is throughout the world in one way or another, and we're wanting to spread it in, uh, into other cultures. Uh, but God's word uh, is still given to a special people, and that is his people, to the church. And so we too have been entrusted with this, especially your elders But all of us, teachers of the word in school, but parents, right? All of us have been given this responsibility. We have been entrusted with it to preserve it, to teach it accurately, to live by it. Now, this responsibility doesn't save us, chapters 1 and 2, but it's still a privilege, an amazing privilege. Now, back in uh, chapter 2, verses 17 and following, I I raised this question. Let me say it again. Can you imagine your life without the Bible? Now, for those of us who've grown up in the church, and a church that taught the scriptures, you can't really imagine life without it. For those who may have grown up outside of the church, you can remember not having the scriptures and its influence and so forth, but I just can't imagine not having the Bible and its impact. I have certainly, and still do, along with every one of us here, (laughs) I've certainly acted like the world and thought like the world and so forth and not had God's word impact my thinking and living in certain ways. But, you know, when you look at unbelievers who have never been exposed to the Scriptures, and unfortunately that's becoming more and more common in our culture, I mean, there, there's a stark difference, isn't there? Hey, Joe mentioned here a moment ago about evolution. Can you imagine being taught as a child your whole life that you're a cosmic accident? and you really have no value and worth at all. If some mightier beast comes along and devours you, oh, no way, that's just the way nature works. But even for those who grew up in the church and are not believers, to be taught that you have value because God made you as a special creation that you have purpose in life because God made you in his image and has given you talents and abilities and so on and so forth. Even the person who goes up and rejects those things still has that, can you say, foundation deep within them that they're rejecting. Do you see the advantage they still have? They have a, 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 a foundation of worth and value because they heard about God making everything compared to the person who grew up outside the church and didn't hear any of those things. Okay. So, You know, when you go to work or you go to school or you go to the gas station or Walmart, and certainly when you watch TV and social media and so forth, you know, the unbelievers are just lost and clueless, miserable usually, and always seeking for momentary happiness. But for those who possess God's word, even though that possession doesn't save even though hearing the truth in and of itself is not going to save the person without the work of the Spirit in them, even though external religion is not going to get them into heaven, doing church is better than the person who never comes to church. Hearing these truths is far better than those who grew up thinking everything is morally relative. Now, it's especially a blessing for those who are true Jews, for those who are elect, for those who have their hearts circumcised. That Now, all these things are definitely a blessing. But even for those who do not have their hearts changed, they're, they're, they're having some blessing by being a part of these things. And so Paul is objecting to this argument, That, okay, if they don't save us, then why bother? He's like, well, you better bother. (laughs) There's a lot of blessing there. And so even if some of my children were to leave the church, God forbid that would happen. They're going to have blessings that the person outside the church would never have. They may not recognize it. They may not admit it, but it's going to be there. Now, Paul... Uh, As we come back here to Romans uh, 3, if you haven't yet, remember he says first. So you expect second and third, right? But he doesn't give that to us here in this section. So let's turn forward a moment to chapter 9, where he continues this list. And he starts with God's word. But uh, here in chapter 9, note beginning in verse 4 especially, gives us some more things. Paul here is talking about the Israelites. He says, to whom pertained the adoption? Hey, God adopted Abraham and nobody else in the whole world. Um, the glory. This refers to God appearing to his people. Hey, I just mentioned Gideon, the angel of the Lord. Uh, he appeared to Abraham, of course, and Isaac and Jacob and so on. Um, then you have the covenants. Uh, certainly think of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, uh, the giving of the law, certainly Mount Sinai, the service of God. This would be the priesthood the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, the promises, obviously, those are found throughout, from especially beginning in Genesis 12, but even before that. And then it says, of whom are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. And so the culmination of this list is Christ is a descendant of Abraham, and he has come. Having all these things is far better than being an Egyptian, or a Philistine, or a Muslim, or the person who lives down the street from you, who has never gone to church and doesn't believe any of these things. These external blessings do not save, but they still are blessings. They are not useless. They are not going to change the heart. Only the Spirit can do that. But they still can provide blessings. As we sang in our second hymn, these blessings have begun below. Right, Solid truths and lasting treasures. They've begun here. And there are some people who enjoy those blessings here on earth. that will not have them eternally. But they still have some of them. And so let me address it in this way. The person who keeps the seventh commandment but does not trust in Jesus is better off than the person who goes to the bar and picks up someone every weekend. Right? The person who is not a Christian but seeks to keep the ninth commandment by telling the truth and not getting involved in gossip and slander is going to have a whole lot more friends than the person who is always spouting their mouth off about everything. Do you see what Paul's driving at here? Here's some examples. Children who grow up in solid Christian homes especially tend to be better students, tend to get better grades and better jobs and make more money. Or they learn good a good work ethic and so that therefore they please their boss and they have more opportunities for advancement. This is certainly not always the case especially among Christian families in general. With solid families, this often is the case. Non-Christians may oppose this and not like it, but it is often true. Even if the children reject the faith. But if they do, those blessings are only temporal. There's nothing eternal about it. And it is often the case for those who've grown up in a solid Christian home and have rejected it, they tend to be miserable and have a lot of difficulties, but they still have some of those blessings. And that's what Paul is emphasizing. And so for all of his words that we've seen over the last uh, two chapters here, he is not denying the advantages. Rather, he is saying our disobedience nullifies the eternal blessings. If there was no value at all, do you see what that would say about God? He makes that abundantly clear in verses 3 to 8. But even here, if there was no value at all, then God's lying to us by saying that having his word is a benefit. But of course, God does not lie. And this is what Paul is emphasizing. And he's going to say it again in verses 3 and 4. And again in verses 5 and 6. And again, in verses 7 and 8, the problem is not God, the problem is us. Now, let me try to bring things together in this way. If we trust in the advantages that we have as Christians, and we do not trust in God, then we become complacent, we take grace for granted, And our pride will lead to greater judgment, and in the end, we'll face eternal judgment. Or to put it another way, Paul is opposing those who say, let's emphasize grace and salvation, blessings and advantages. Let's not talk so much about sin and depravity and curses and judgment. And Paul is saying, but if you do that, then you might actually trust in yourself. And he doesn't want us to do that at all. I heard someone tell me um, a number of years ago now, someone that you know who is not here any longer. I had a sermon, I don't even remember where it was. might have been in one of the prophets or something like that. And I was making the case from the text here that... um, We must apply God's harsh words of cursing and judgment to all of us. We all need to hear that message. And the response that I received was, Well, I don't need to hear that message. I'm a true believer. And I tried to make some responses to that. Unfortunately, that very person ended up falling into sin and got into a lot of trouble. If we do not hear Paul's words in Romans 1 to 3, we may trust ourselves and think, well, that judgment's not going to apply to me. And Paul's like, I don't want you to think that at all, so that you will turn to God, that you will look to Jesus. Because God is faithful to all of his promises, including the judgment. All right, Paul's going to say more about this, of course, in chapter 9. But let me end by talking a little bit more about the blessings of having God's word. And let's do so by turning to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, if you remember the structure of Deuteronomy, um, Moses follows the the pattern of the covenant, and so he's talking about the historical prologue here in this section, and then we'll get to the uh, stipulations in chapter 5. And so in the midst of this historical background, in chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, he says these words. Verse 7, For what great nation is there that has God so near to it? as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him? The answer is there is no other nation. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Again, there is no other nation. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, Unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. There are a lot of things in here and a lot of directions we can go, but let me have us go in this direction in this way now. The generation that um, Moses is addressing saw the miracles of God. Now, by the time you get to the end of the wilderness, the people who were part of the Exodus were dying off. where their children did see the miracles of God, especially with the manna and other things. But notice how he says, "...lest you forget the things your eyes have seen." And so he says, teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Let me go back to the question I raised before. Can you imagine not having the Bible? Or let me put it this way. Can you imagine if God only gave us a picture book or a video instead of giving us words? We often hear people say a picture is worth a thousand words. And okay, yeah, there's some truth to that. But words are far better than pictures because pictures eventually lead to idolatry is one of the reasons why. But words can capture far more than a picture can in the end. A picture captures a moment, but words can go on forever. Do we have any of the art from Solomon's temple? But we have got uh, Solomon's words, don't we? Think of the miracles. Moses here is talking about it, and you think of the Exodus and the plagues and the Red Sea and so forth, and think of the miracles of Christ and so on. We weren't there. We didn't see it with our eyes. But because of words, we know about it. We don't have a drawing here of the Red Sea parting and Charlton Heston standing there. We don't have those things, right? We have words. God's past actions bless us today because the word has been recorded. The word is given to us today, and we can teach it to our children. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, you remember we start in chapter 1 with God's word, not God's character, because it's the word of God that gives us this knowledge, ultimately. As Christians, we do not base our lives on feelings, or experience, but on words that God has given. It's God's word that does bring salvation, the preached and proclaimed word. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's the gospel that does save us through the work of the Spirit, changing our hearts, right? The Spirit doesn't just do it randomly, He does it through the proclaimed word. It is the word of God that sanctifies us. Remember Jesus said in John 15, you are now clean because of the words I have spoken to you. Obviously in Psalm 119, the word of God is our guide. It is useful for all things. Now it is only ultimately useful when the spirit is worked in the person's heart. But it still has benefit, even for those who are not true believers. And so let's read it. Let's study it. Let's memorize it. Let's not memorize every line of a movie. Let's memorize what God has given to us here. Let's live by it. Let's teach it. Sin has messed everything up. But God remains, and his word remains. And so this is the, if you will, balance Paul's trying to bring to those who are objecting to Uh, His, you might say, somewhat extreme argument. Well, there's so much to say, but uh, here are a few words uh, for us this morning. And so Lord willing, next time, we will look at Paul's next objection that he asked to address. All right, let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing blessing Lord, we are thankful that we can read it, that we can hear it proclaimed, that we're not floundering trying to figure out what you want for us, but you've told it to us and preserved it over these centuries, and we are so thankful that we have it here today. Lord, help us not to trust in your word as an external way to save us. Help us to trust in Christ and the work of your spirit within us. But Lord, we pray that our lives would be centered on your word, centered on the truths that you have given to us, that we would live accordingly, that there would be uh, blessings, that you would be honored, that our children would be benefited, that our church would be uh, blessed. Lord, we, again, just can't thank you enough for this blessing, this advantage, this privilege. And uh, we pray that you would then use it now for your, um, your purposes as we have heard it proclaimed. And so we pray all these things then in Christ's name.